So Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, this is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do keep that passage of the Bible open, page 973. And the crowd, Jesus' listeners and viewers, are here trying to work out exactly who he is. They know him possibly uh, as a pretty bright young lad of 12 on that trip from Jerusalem back to Nazareth, asking kind of some insightful questions. They may have known him as a carpenter. They would certainly have known he was from Nazareth. But uh, they would probably also know that uh, there were rumours about the legitimacy of his birth going around. We know that from John's Gospel. And then aged 30, he caused a sensation in the Galilee. He teaches, and his teaching had a ring of truth about it. He spoke as one speaking with uh, divine authority. His character... They had a chance to see, and they couldn't find any fault in him. 
And perhaps most sensational of all was that he had the ability to do miracles. And one of those is one we have today. A paralytic, a case that nobody else could do anything about. And yet instantly and completely, Jesus restores this guy to normality without even touching him and before their very eyes. It is truly astonishing, absolutely astonishing. So obviously, um, a miracle that the observers of it had no choice but to concede that it was supernatural. Nobody seems to doubt that these things have happened, not even his strongest opponents. The choice they do have, though, is whether it is by a benevolent or a malevolent force. Who's behind it? At that particular point in time in the Gospels, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are inclining towards the latter conclusion. Perversely, doing such good is by them beginning to be put down to evil forces. So, before us this morning, we have uh, this miraculous healing of the paralytic, which raises another question, a bigger one. We have the call of one person to be one of the twelve, the foundation of the new Israel, and Levi gets a name change to Matthew. Then we have a question about fasting and why Jesus' disciples didn't. And finally, there are a couple of enigmatic parables. Well, let's take a look at all this together. And you'll find an outline on the service sheet to help you uh, follow, as well as this passage on page 973. So if you're someone who's trying to work through exactly who Jesus is, or if you're someone who thinks you do know, but you're not quite sure how to respond, if you're unclear about the future of God's grand plan, and if you wonder how uh, Judaism and Christianity are related, then I'll expect that you will find something here that will be helpful. So the healing of the paralytic, first of all, one to seven. And you're probably aware that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are quite similar Gospels. They have a number of episodes which are word for word the same. But they are different. Some of them they choose to include more things or less things than others. And if you just take Matthew and Mark, for example, you'll have noticed that in our Bible um, that uh, Matthew has 28 chapters against Mark 16. Or if you look at it in pages, Matthew has 36 and Mark has 22. That's because Mark doesn't include as much material as Matthew. And when he does, he doesn't include so much detail. Here, though, if we compare Matthew and Mark, the accounts from these two evangelists of this one event, the reverse is the case. Mark is the one who writes the most, if you put them up in parallel next to one another. Mark's account is longer. It mentions, for example, that the crowd was so large outside this house that the paralytic's mates had to go up the steps by the side of the house, get on the roof, dig a hole through the mud ceiling, then lower their paralytic friend into the room. Matthew doesn't mention any of that. 
It's interesting, but it provides us with more detail. But it is not what is important about the incident. Now, what's, I think, significant for us to note is that the evangelists feel perfectly free to include or not include the incidental details of the context in which this event happened. What they don't do, though, is change the words of Jesus. They're the same. An indication that they have deep reverence for the authority of Jesus and what he said. And we'll see later how the choice of Matthew helped facilitate this. Next we see how everyone is taken by surprise. The man is taken by surprise. You imagine that you are the paralytic there. You know, perhaps you've been paralysed all your life. What are you expecting Jesus to do? You've heard of his reputation. You might even possibly have seen him perform certain miracles. You would obviously expect him to say to you, get up, walk off, you're healed. But what does Jesus say? Verse 2, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. That's not what the paralytic wanted to hear, nor was he expecting it. And then the teachers of the law, they were in for a surprise too. They knew Jesus as a miracle-working rabbi. And as I've said, they were still deliberating about whether his supernatural miracle-working ability was uh, due to benevolent or malevolent forces. And they get a surprise, not from what Jesus does, but again from what he says. Your sins are forgiven. For them, that was blasphemous. Blasphemous because Jesus is claiming to be able to do something, forgive sins, which only God has the authority to do so. And the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. So with surprise, shock and indignation to the fore, Jesus raises a question, which is easier, to pronounce absolution, of sins, or perform a miracle. From our perspective, the human perspective, the answer is obviously to pronounce forgiveness of sins. Such a statement easily trips off the lips, and uh, such a statement is unverifiable. How can you know? It's just words. Where's the evidence that the pronouncement is effective. And that's why Jesus performs a miracle, to demonstrate that what he says is true and that he's from God and that he has authority to forgive sins. The miracle, in other words, identifies who he is. We read, Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, the Son of Man was a favourite title of Jesus, but it was one that was little explored in the Old Testament. It comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where there is a heavenly figure who at the end of time would come to earth as judge. So what Jesus is saying is that the one they were expecting to pitch up on the last day to judge everyone has just arrived. 
not now to judge, but to save. So Jesus does a miracle to identify himself. He does things only God can do. And they illustrate what he's come to do, to restore as God intended. Of course, from God's perspective, Jesus' perspective, it is easier to perform a miracle than it is to pronounce the absolution of sins. For somebody who can bring the entire universe into existence just by a word of command, doing a few overridings of natural law is rather effortless. However, to be in a position to forgive sins gives God a rather bigger problem. If you, uh, if you have or have ever had any kind of management responsibility or, organize, or responsibility for staff or organisational procedures, you've probably encountered the problem to some degree yourself. You've had occasions when what you would like to do as an individual conflicts with what you have to do as someone in authority in the organisation. And you may have felt trapped between your desire and the company's rules. Well, God is not, of course, trapped, but he does have a problem, and that is how to reconcile two aspects of his character, his love and his justice. His love desires to welcome back the rebellious wrongdoer into the family of God, but his justice demands that rebellious wrongdoing has to be punished. After all, sin is alien, not only to his character, but to his world. It spreads so quickly and easily, and it is so destructive of his creation and his creatures. And other human beings are so wired up with a sense of justice that when they're on the receiving end of injustice, they point the finger at God and say, why don't you do something about it? They demand justice of him. They expect him to act without fear and favour. He has to deal with it. He has to act justly. His problem, though, is how to reconcile those two aspects of his character, love and justice. And the solution, the only solution, is if he himself suffers the punishment for wrongdoing in the place of the wrongdoer, so that the wrongdoer or the sinner can be freed to be accepted by God. Hence, God, the Son, the second person of the divine community of love, volunteered for this rescue mission, to have sin punished, justice satisfied, so the guilty can go free and be reconciled to God their Father. So he needed to come as a human being to represent humankind. He had to come as divine so that he could live a perfect life and therefore be a perfect substitute for us. And having won forgiveness for us, he is in the position, the best position, to be able to offer it to us. It is that forgiveness of sins and the ensuing eternal life with God that is our greatest need and God's greatest gift to us. 
When Jesus, in uh, Matthew eight twenty seven calmed the raging storm in an instant, by a simple word of command, the disciples are said to be amazed. Here, though, they and the crowd are said to be in awe. Now, why might that be? What has happened to produce this shift in attitude? Well, might it be due to the explicit link that Jesus makes between the coming divine visitor, the Son of Man, the judge, and to the fact that their own sin is now put into the frame. There is a moment when our eyes are open, when we perhaps realise for the first time, or perhaps after a period of wandering in the wilderness like the prodigal son, and we realise that we are in the wrong with God, that he is the judge and that we're lost. And unless we come clean and confess our sins to him, we will remain lost. But do that then, and we're saved. Stick it out, stay stubborn, and we're lost. Well, that's the main thrust of this incident. But there are some minor points which are well worth us drawing on too. First of all, there is the complacency of Capernaum. Bethlehem had been his birthplace. Nazareth had been the place that he had grown up in, his home. But Capernaum was his base for his three years of his public ministry. It was there that he performed many miracles, that he did a lot of his teaching. And it was there where people could get to know him and to see something of his character. But maybe familiarity, in this case, bred contempt. Maybe because they had the luxury of being able to postpone their evaluation of him because they knew they'd see him again, that they avoided settling on a verdict. But delay can be fatal. Just turn over a couple of pages to Matthew eleven twenty-three and 24. They reveal that not to decide for Jesus is still to decide, but against him. And abstention is in effect a no vote, a vote against. This is what Jesus uh, went on to say about those inhabitants of Capernaum, 11.23. And you, Capernaum, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day, but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. What do you do with a person who is in need? Well, there are some things we can do, but as far as God and eternity are concerned, not really. So they brought this man to Jesus. They knew they couldn't do what he needed to have done to him, but they knew that Jesus could. On the surface, a miracle of healing, but it illuminates the restoration of life with God. 
Next, it's interesting how Jesus knows their very thoughts. It says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Hebrews 4.13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Apostle Paul in Romans 2.16 says, This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. Again, sobering stuff. That should make all of us undertake a humble, periodic self-appraisal to ensure, as one of David's psalms expresses it, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then lastly and fourthly in this little kind of section, this is an example of what can very often be true, that suffering in the body can be of benefit to the soul. Had the paralytic not been paralysed, Maybe his interest in Jesus may have only been one of curiosity. His illness highlighted for him that in his situation, only Jesus could fix him. Bishop Ryle says, If through our trials we are brought to Jesus, and if through them we are kept close to him, our disadvantage, like the paralytics, is turned to our advantage. Or as a gifted businessman who, um, and effective Christian who I once knew put it in relationship to a leading public figure whose life had come crashing down and yet through it found Christ said, God has to wreck our lives, but it's better to have that happen than to lose out on eternity. In a few years, it will all be gone and it won't matter, but heaven won't. I thought that a bit strong at the time when he said it in conversation, but of course, he's right. Well, before I run out of time, we need to look at the call of Levi, who became Matthew. Well, who was he? Well, he was a Jew, and he sided with the establishment, with Herod Antipas, the Roman puppet ruler at the time of Jesus. A marked contrast with another of Jesus's 12, Simon Salotes, who uh, was at the other end of the political spectrum, one who rather than collude with the authorities, conspired against them, possibly even violently. Israel is very usefully located in the, the Fertile Crescent, that kind of uh, area that we all learnt of at school that runs from Egypt up through Israel, through Lebanon, Syria, to southern Turkey, Iraq and Iran. And by being placed there, of course, they could charge tariffs on the caravan trades which went to and fro, and anybody who crossed their border. And that's what they did. Revenue and customs officers like Matthew probably the second oldest profession. Now the Romans would have expected a certain amount, Herod Antipas would have expected a certain amount, 
and he recruited Jews who had few scruples. And they could earn quite a packet by being customs officials because they could add on their cut. And that may have made them prosperous, but it lost them popularity. But Matthew, whose new name meant gift of Yahweh, was God's gift to the human Jesus because tax collectors needed to know Aramaic, the language of the Hebrews, the language Jesus spoke. They needed to know Greek, which was the language of commerce and trade, and Latin, the language of the conquering and occupying powers. And what's more, tax collectors developed the art of shorthand to record the goods in transit and the tax collected. Matthew was used to precise note-taking. How useful for one who was selected to record the words of Jesus for us. So note that all the gifts that we are given as human beings can be Christianized when we become Christians and used by our Lord to spread the gospel. Next, what an encouragement to know that if Levi, somebody in his position, can become a Christian, then almost anybody can. So if you are praying for a friend or family member, maybe there's somebody like Levi who is very, very comfortably well off and may display the thoughts that they don't need anything else. Well, maybe they do. Maybe deep down and at certain times in their life when some adversity does come along, that they will need that all their wealth will not give them forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we pray, as one of the psalmists writes, the voice of the Lord is powerful, and that his voice would get through to them at such times. Next, Matthew is an example of how to respond to Jesus, verse 9. He is called by Jesus and he came. Now, it's very likely that Matthew, who's based in Capernaum, that he did, in fact, encounter Jesus many times at his customs post as Jesus travelled in and out of the surrounding areas. How much of Jesus and his message Matthew knew at this point, we don't know, but clearly enough to be able to appraise and respond. Maybe he was only too aware of his own fraudulent nature through the ostracism that he experienced for carrying out his work. Maybe he did deep down think he was too bad a person for Jesus. But when he received the invitation, he did not hesitate. And the very next thing he did was to invite his mates round for dinner to meet Jesus. Very natural, very effective. They're called tax collectors and sinners. Sinners were basically anybody who didn't keep the 613 extra rules that the Pharisees had dreamt up because if you did, then you could claim to be the righteous. And Jesus is attacking the Pharisees' notion that there are two such groups, the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not those who offer all the right sacrifices for sins who are righteous. And so then 
in having done so, can look down on others with moral and spiritual superiority. No, it's those who know the reality that we're all unrighteous by nature, but who know God's merciful forgiveness. It is they who are righteous and who show it not by self-righteous superiority, but who express mercy to others as they've received mercy themselves from God. So two simple lessons to take away here. If we're ever tempted to go walk about and to step outside the authority of Jesus, we shouldn't. We should step back under his authority. Or if we mistake respectability in the eyes of men with reconciliation in the eyes of God, giving us the moral high ground, then we need to think again. We are only acceptable to God through the mediation of Jesus Christ and his constant prayers on our behalf. There's no time, whether in this life or the next, when I do not need him. And let's end just by looking at these two pieces here. The first, fasting. So John the Baptist's disciples say to him, verse 14, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Well, in the Old Testament, God is depicted as the bridegroom and his people, his bride. By New Testament times, Jesus is, uh, the Jewish thought, the Jews thought of the coming Messiah as the bridegroom, and therefore they fasted. Now was not the time for wedding celebrations. It was sometime in the future. The wedding reception would be when the bridegroom appears. So what does Jesus mean by not teaching his disciples to fast? It's quite obvious, isn't it? Jesus is saying the bridegroom is here. The Messiah has arrived. But Jesus adds something no one was expecting. The bridegroom's coming would be in two stages, and in between them, he would be taken from them, which is perhaps the first hint of his death. Verse 13, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. And then there are these two enigmatic parables, verse 16 and 17. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out of the wineskins, and the wineskins will be ruined. No. They pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So, uh, a piece of new, strong, unshrunk cloth used as a patch will damage a garment, because when it's washed, the new piece shrinks and tears the fabric. Similarly, dried-out leather bottles, when new wine, which is still fermenting, is poured in, does not... Uh, stretch under pressure, and so bursts open. So too, the new spirit of the kingdom cannot be contained within the old forms of Judaism. 
it must develop new forms, although Jesus doesn't define exactly what these new forms will be. It's enough for him to indicate that the whole Jewish religion will have to be reformed if it's not to be destroyed. Hence the people of God is now an international community focused on Jesus and his second coming rather than on an ethnic group still awaiting the Messiah not able to recognise that he has already come and will come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching of Jesus. We pray that we might reflect on it, apply it where needed, and benefit from it as we look to your second coming as the bridegroom at the end of time and we the bride who long to be united with you forever. Amen.